Thank you for listening to Knocking Doors Down, brought to you by KDD Media Company. Here at Knocking Doors Down, we share the stories of people who overcome adversity. You know that already, but what you may not know is that our partners at the Carlos Vieira Foundation aim to help people who struggle with their own adversities as well. The Carlos Vieira Foundation helps those in need through their Race for Autism, Race to Be Drug-Free, and Race to End the Stigma campaigns. You can also choose the Carlos Vieira Foundation as your charitable organization on Amazon Smile to contribute as well. To learn more and support these causes, check out all the info at carlosvierafoundation.org. Great episode for you. We're speaking with Megan Leach, Mikey. Yes, we are, Jason. And uh, boy, you wonder when addiction can start. Oftentimes we think, you know, when you enter adulthood, you'll hear how Megan's story started with addiction at just 12 years old. Yeah, addiction has no age, man. Does not discriminate on your age, that's for sure. No, definitely doesn't for your gender, your social economic status, uh, race, or anything this is an interesting story of how uh, a beautiful age, such a sweetheart, could fall so deep so quick. I mean, her story of addiction, really, if you break it down, was only about seven years. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, hey, any any phase of addiction getting beyond it, but talk about a lot of strength to overcome. She definitely went uh, down to some depths. You're going to hear how jail time definitely affected that, a family history of addiction and more Mm -hmm. that came into play. And um, I think one of the interesting things she said was, my life went to crap quicker than I could lower my standards. Yeah. Think about that. Think about it. Let that sit in. And now the great uh, thing about Megan is she is using her addiction and she is uh, the hell she went through, as she puts it herself, is such a blessing to her life. And that's one of the things that we like to communicate here is that any of your adversities can become your greatest advantage when you just flip the way you think about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I was uh, looking on uh, social media the other day and there is a, a model who does like Revlon or all these different things and she's an amputee and she's out there kicking ass and running marathons and. And, uh, you know, when you hear Megan talk about how her life turned around, you think of people like that, that any sort of adversity, of course, we do a lot with addiction mm-hmm. primarily, but you can turn it into your greatest advantage at any time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Don't get discouraged and keep pushing for what you believe in, you know? Absolutely. And if you guys have yet to go to the Carlos Vieira Foundation, uh, official website's carlosvierafoundation.org. Of course, uh, the 5150 Energy Drink, they are shipping those out. They've been uh, reduced in price, shipping them out with all proceeds benefiting the Carlos Vieira Foundation and the three programs, Race to End the Stigma, Race to Be Drug-Free, and Race for Autism. And uh, those three programs, of course, one focusing keeping kids off the streets, out of drugs. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have someone in your family that uh, is autistic and you want to apply for one of those scholarships. Go there, find out more information. Or if you yourself or someone you know has struggled with mental health issues, but your family or yourself has overcome it, maybe you're heading off to college, they have a scholarship program there as well. So inquire about it. We are looking to help people with these different adversities go out and do something great so carlosvierafoundation.org we'll be right back with Megan Leach and our lovely guest today Megan Leach how are you dear? I'm doing well hi that's good that's good where are you at because your background is much more beautiful than our soundproofing so yeah I'm in Jupiter Florida oh Jupiter Florida once this clears up we're going to visit 
We are going, we're getting out. We got to yeah. get out of the. We're we in the should. we're in the Central Valley here in California, and it's like this time of year the ag is going on. So it's like mm-hmm. everybody's everybody's coughing anyways, just naturally. So you go to the store yeah. and everyone's freaking out. Don't so. be alarmed if you hear us coughing. We're fine. We're good. Oh no! Like this tree behind me lets off a ton of pollen. So oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Coughing too. So they're yeah. like, oh, you know, coughing, shortness of breath. I'm like, I've had anxiety for seven years. I always right. have shortness of breath. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Great. Well, uh, we're talking with Megan, of course. Uh, Megan, you have an affiliation with the Banyan Centers, which uh, you know we had recently spoken with Brandon Novak. Good Sim- friend of mine. Yeah, similar affiliation there. So we're going to get a little bit more into, uh, you know, your ad- background with opioid addiction. But I kind of like to, um, because of me, alcohol, and I come from addiction on both sides of my family. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's it, my brother and I have joked that a coin was flipped. I got it. He didn't. Same. You know, so <laughs> kind of what what's the background for you then, Megan? At what Was it something that, uh, you know, was childhood or did you have a pretty good upbringing and it was just something you fell into and got hooked? Yeah, both. Honestly, I come from a great family. I was born and raised in Florida. I'm from Wellington, Florida, to be exact. Big equestrian community, a very nice area. I grew up going to good schools. I have awesome parents. Um, One of my parents, I'll leave details out, one of my parents does struggle with alcoholism. So I did grow up with um, alcoholism around me and my other parent, not so much. But either way, I never went without. I had everything I needed, but a lot more of the emotional stuff, um, not understanding and and feeling different. Mm. Um, Although I'm sure many other kids were going through the same thing, right? Which on another conversation, I do a lot of advocacy for younger kids speaking in schools, trying to tell them they're not so different. I bet oh, you some of your classmates could understand type of thing. So sure. I um, I just felt very different. I, you know, to fast forward, um, although playing soccer and I was a big athlete and all those types of things, at 12 years old, I picked up my first drink. Mm-hmm. And I, I explained it as I drank truly 100% to disconnect and to to get drunk. I was alone. I wasn't with anyone. I was generally pretty popular at school. Um, I wore great masks. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. that helps explain it. And uh, I got drunk because I didn't want to feel my feelings. And when I stumbled and I fell into the table and I like physically didn't feel it right because of the alcohol, I I didn't feel the feelings and I thought it was the answer. Um, And that's where my story started. I so I started drinking at 12 and I drank when I could. Like I said, I had an alcoholic parent who was a blackout drunk, didn't remember how much they drank so I could drink their alcohol and get away with it. You just um, always had it accessible so that is to the you. starting. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, and I can definitely relate to that because for me, my, you know, I don't think I was any different than a lot of other 20-year-olds and working in rock radio and being around rock stars and mm-hmm. you go, you drink. And, and fortunately, any of, uh, not that alcohol isn't hardcore because, uh, you know, I, I've seen what it's done to me. I've seen what it's done to many others. But uh, the hardcore things didn't touch, but then going through a tumultuous uh, uh, relationship, marriage, you know, divorce and things like that, it just, it took off. And it definitely Mm -hmm. was for me um, as a natural introvert, but yet I still like to make people laugh. And that was how I Mm -hmm. connected. And I think for me through high school, that's when my dad's addiction was at its peak. You know, that for me, that laughter was was even my disconnect and my shield. And so I, I... I totally relate. Every time someone just says, 
you know, it, it, it became that disconnect for me. And I went from the mm-hmm. fun party guy to the immediately, you know, the 18 pack to the 30 pack over the weekend right. uh, quite quickly. Yeah. You know, and because I Oh, it happens fast for some. I yeah. was also a rapid um, progression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like you. I didn't see it coming. You couldn't have told me that I was going down the path of alcoholism and drug addiction. Um, but all of the pieces lining up, it was just. I, you know, I kind of say the odds were against me. I didn't really have a chance. I, I didn't know what was happening and I loved it. So it was just the perfect storm for me to keep on, you know, losing interest in soccer, losing interest in, well, I wasn't the biggest, I wasn't the best student. Um, I was always more interested <laughs> in what everybody was doing. So I can relate, I, you know, yeah, I was just like what school wasn't always for learning. It was for fun. And you know, but slowly what happens, right? And I'm sure, you know, you can identify with this, that um, the friends that I had slowly didn't really, they didn't want to do the things I was doing. They didn't want to hang out with me. And, and I kind of, I started to change, I'm sure, um, from my temper to, you know, then what we, we become more selfish. It was about yeah. me. And so I, I started to see that my friend group started shifting, my interests were shifting. And there's this, uh, this, quote that one of my first mentors had told me is, you know, where my life went to crap for a sense of reasons, my life went to crap quicker than I could lower my standards type wow. of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I came from good people. I came from a good area, but I slowly found myself, um, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with like Riviera beach and, and there's parts yeah. in my town that you go a little on the outside and you're not in Wellington anymore. And and I found myself shifting. So, mm-hmm. um, the opiate addiction that I got really, really deep into started at about 15 years old. Oh so from God. 12 to 15, I experimented, I tried other things, but the opiates at 15 is what changed everything for me. How did you uh, get into at just the age of 15 opioids? Because that's just uh, mind boggling to me. I mean, I understand, you know, we talked to a gentleman who was uh, um, uh, Luke, uh, who I believe you know. Uh, as one well. of my good friends too. Yeah, mm-hmm. awesome, awesome guy. And uh, you know, it made sense in sports because it was you know through pain and stuff like that. How at mm-hmm. 15 were you gaining access to opioids? So coming with drinking and drugging in high school, I naturally had friends who were, you know, either older or kind of getting into things that generally kids my age weren't. So it just gave me access to a lot of things. And and I'm just not, I tell people to not be naive, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, kids can really get their hands on things. It's, It's not that hard. If you're looking for it today, sure. I don't look for it. Nobody's got none of my friends yeah, have drugs yeah. in their pockets. You know, it's just the way it goes. Um, but I, I did find myself around people who like to party and drink. So I'm sure you're, you might be familiar, especially if you spoke with Luke and some other people. But the opioid epidemic really started here in South Florida. So there was the doctor shopping and a lot of. Um, corrupt doctors that were yeah. providing unrealistic amounts of um, prescriptions to young adults, I mean, 18 or older, but generally in their early 20s to 25 years old, people who did not need painkillers at all were being prescribed un, you know, you couldn't put your mind around how yeah. many um, prescriptions were being written in the amounts 
So people were getting hooked. And, and I happened to be friends with people who were going to the doctors and getting these medications. So when I was 15, these guys might have been like 18 years old and people that I was hanging out with that were good people who mm-hmm. also didn't know what yeah. opioid addiction was. So none of us got into this thinking that we were going to get addicted. Right. We didn't know that it was similar to heroin. I mean, these are just things that we were not educated on. So yeah. I started doing these these pills, um, maybe with, mixed with other drugs, and it was a party thing at first. And then all of a sudden, um, I found, well, actually, I talk about it. it was the day that I knew I crossed the line. I woke up one morning, and I thought I had the flu. And I thought I was sick, and I was about to call out of work. And the person I was with that morning was like, don't do this to yourself. And they gave me a pill. It was a Roxycodone, those small little blue pills. And um, and I took it. And within 10 minutes, I was up and out the door. And that was the moment I realized I needed that pill mm-hmm. to get out of bed. Right. And that was wow. the first moment I realized I was addicted. Damn. Oh, yeah. And, it, you know, it's you just coming from, again, a background of addiction. And as we continue to talk to more and more people and having gone through treatment myself and groups and things like sorry, that. Sorry, my dog here. Oh, I'm so sorry. that's all right. Oh, look at the puppy. We love dogs. Oh, look at I the look puppy. Weird, like petting something. I'm like, let me just show you there is an animal. I'd have my it. dog here if they allowed it. Don't even worry oh, about it. That's yeah. all right. We love it, Megan. But, uh, no, you know, and, it, and it's the sad thing. That, that we all eventually come to to that point in that realization. So once you kind of knew that about this addiction, at what point did you start to get help? Was it was it like this rock bottom for Megan and no. here we go or mm-hmm. no? That was like, okay, noted. I need it every day. Oh, honestly. Damn. That yeah. was that was just where my head was at. I I have to explain that I had no clue what recovery was. I had right. no clue what addiction was. I didn't even know that I was technically addicted to this drug. I started drinking so young and I, I mean I started doing things like cocaine at fourteen, you know, just and I say that so nonchalant because I'm I'm over a decade into recovery and so this is like a bad dream to me. And mm-hmm. and a lot of it is like a nightmare and I'm like that that happens and it's normally stuff like this that reminds me that that was my past. Um but I I just didn't know what addiction was. I had a parent who was an alcoholic, like I said, and, and I knew they tried to go to AA and it didn't work and I didn't so I never yeah. explored what AA actually was and and so when all of this was happening it was just okay, I need to make sure I get this and that started my journey of doctor shopping and getting mixed up with a lot of the illegal stuff that was going on. And again, not because I um, wanted the lifestyle of the rap songs and I had all this money <laughs> in the bank. It was it was like to survive. Yeah. And um and I didn't know how that happened. I didn't know like what decision was it that I made that led me here. So I really don't even try and, and see what could I have done differently because I probably shouldn't have picked up a drink at 12. Right. Like, so, so really the whole story mattered and it led me up to where I am today. And so I, I talk very openly and and it's not uncomfortable for me. Um, and I'm grateful for that because a lot of people I'm sure need to hear stuff like this. I like that that can happen and you don't have to stay in that. Um, you know, so I, I just kept using, I started doctor shopping and, and just, it, it seemed to get deeper and deeper where I did have to do things like, you know, different, 
transactions to, to get what I needed. Yeah. You know, I never really had considered myself a drug dealer. I never looked at it like that. I looked right. at it as this is just, this is what I need to do to not get that flu feeling yeah. that I mm-hmm. felt that one time and I did everything to avoid it. So I found myself doing that. Um, but I want to make it clear that like I was still working. I graduated high school um, by the skin of my teeth. Nothing was done with a a ton of effort it was all just doing what i had to do to get by and not look like a total loser right i thought if i at least graduate um you know so i always managed to maintain a little bit and so i say that because somebody can be in full-blown addiction and still graduate high school it doesn't mean everybody who is an addict drops out um and i say that to say don't be disguised don't let people be disguised and think, oh, well, look at them. They're working and they graduated or they're going to college because I still kept all those things intact. Um, so I still I was able to not completely lose everything. Um, and at 19 years old, so to get to the peak of it, at 19, I ended up getting in a lot of legal trouble. Um, I got pulled over for speeding and I had a lot of drugs on me without a prescription in my name. Um, so I ended up going, I got arrested that night on three felony drug trafficking charges. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, at 19 years old. So yeah. from 12 to 19, I found myself like, I don't want to feel my feelings. Yep. I'm going to drink. To, how did I get here? What's my dad going to say? I was in the back of a cop car all by myself. And, um, and that's where, like, that's where the real journey started for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And uh, one of the things you touched on, Megan, that uh, Mikey and myself were actually having a conversation about last week, if mm-hmm. you remember, I brought this up, Mikey, was was seeing people, peak performers, be it athletes, uh, oh, yeah. people mm-hmm. of business and industry, uh, entertainment, whatever it is, that they, they're able to, this success, quote unquote, uh, as mm-hmm. I'm making air quotes for the people that are right, just li- listening, that. not watching the video, <laughs> success right. and, and and what we go, wow, that person's such a success. I mean, I'm such a huge Robert Downey Jr. fan. He's one of, uh, well, right. God, it would be such a cool thing to talk to him because as I've gone through through my recovery, he's one of the people that I've looked up to. Mm-hmm. Um, but with all this great success and, and not seeing that they're still just functioning. And to mm-hmm. me, it's still, right. uh, you know... My addiction started later in life, but for me, it's still uh, baffling to me that you were able to start at 12 and there wasn't that safety net or that protection there, you know, because when my dad Mm -hmm. um, first started going into uh, recovery centers, you know, we went, we supported him, uh, you know, one of the sad things is I saw Anna Nicole Smith uh, at a facility just not long before mm-hmm. she ended up actually oh, passing wow. and, and those kind of things. And it's like, wow, these people have success. But there was never a conversation that was sat right. down about addiction and what it could look like and what it would look like if I started taking it coming into my life. Um, mm-hmm. So, it, you know, I think it's so great that you're going out and talking to the youth for one and taking your yeah. story because it needs to happen. The education needs to happen a lot younger. The prevention. The prevention. The prevention aspect. Yeah. yeah. So We're looking at a lot of it after the problem's already been planted. And, and so I think really reaching kids and, and my message is always about talking about your feelings and emotions. And, and I use very simple things. Like if you put a beach ball underwater and then let it go, it comes up and it's no different with feelings. I, I truly believe I drank cause I didn't like how I felt. And I saw that my, you know, my parent was drinking and went to work every day, you know? And yeah. so I just, I put the pieces together. Right. So, and that's where I get the idea that the, you know, I didn't have a chance. I, these are the things that seems like logic to me. 
And, and so when I drank and, and then I didn't feel all those crappy feelings and I felt, you know, and the alcohol didn't end up being what I stuck to, um, the opiates were more functioning. I mm-hmm. think if I were to have been somebody who fell in, like the drinking was just all I had. I don't know if alcoholism was ever going to be the path I took entirely because I don't think I would have kept it together as well. I think opiates are, for me or for people where they affect them the way they affected me, it is a functioning drug until you can't function without it. Mm -hmm. Then you're completely reliant. So, um, you know, I think that a lot of successful people did find themselves in this opiate addiction to numb the feelings, the stress, the anxiety, and you just go, go, go. Um, and I think one of the biggest gifts that I've received from recovery was the awareness that I don't have to just keep surviving, that yeah. um, the the most painful outcome would have been to not die and to just continuously been in my addiction because it was such torture that I, I've been given the chance to like grow and learn and um, and know that I wasn't destined to be an addict because it's amazing. That is what I believed. I believed I was supposed to be an addict that it was the cards I was dealt because I didn't know where it happened, right? Looking back, I do. But in the moment, I was like, this is just, I didn't ask for this. So I assume that. So little things like that, that are, they sound crazy when you say them out loud. Um, People might really be thinking that stuff, that recovery isn't, you know, their path. And so that's kind of what I, I see today is that I get to live and not just survive. Right. That's awesome. You know, it's funny. We put out a, a quote on our social media um, as of the day that we're recording with you. And, and uh, uh, one of the followers on our Instagram brought up the, the reference of, of people uh, surviving, existing, not really living. And sometimes that's our greatest fear. And mm-hmm. I know for me, I still struggle with it. I still have a lot of the anxieties. I've had mm-hmm. to learn different ways and methods of, of conducting myself mm-hmm. and doing life. That uh, yeah. that I never thought that I never thought of myself as because for me it was definitely mm-hmm. a lot of a uh, lot of uh, you know self image issues and things of that nature right. no self esteem I mean zero self esteem people always joke that it's like you know what do you have negative self esteem no I have zero it's not even an existent right. thought of like self esteem yeah. and it, which is funny because I've had people tell me I'm narcissist and I'm like how I got no self-esteem whatsoever. I don't know. Right. It's just, it's, I'd like to develop one. I'd like to figure that out now that I'm in my forties, you know? So, well, I wouldn't say that that is the first impression I get of you. So, so again, <laughs> I think so much of it, but you bring up a great point. We don't know what's going on inside other people. Um, I sponsor other women in recovery awesome. and, and they'll come to me and they'll be like, look at that couple. They're so happy. Why can't I have, you know, in their comparison? I go, how do you know they're happy? Yeah. You don't know that they're happy. Exactly. Um, or this person's already finished the 12 steps. Look how good they're doing. I'm like, how do you know they're doing good? Because I was such an, I was someone who totally gave you what wasn't real. Everyone thought I was always happy. They thought I was well, and I was just not, I wasn't. And so I tell people, um, you know, you may have heard this this is not my quote or unique, but I can't judge my insides based on other people's outsides. And I really think that is what I try to live by today and consider when I'm jealous of somebody or I'm comparing myself, or I think I'm not where I should be with my career, my education, whatever. I think, um, 
I, I try to remember that that person might be feeling very similar to me that often yeah. people don't know what's truly going on with somebody on the inside. So I try to kind of roll with that. And it seems to make me more compassionate, understanding and so on, not only for others, but for myself, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Self-compassion is a really tough thing, especially for addicts. Mm-hmm. I know for me, yeah. you know, uh, my my addiction um you know, and I think the, my my children's mom would probably agree that hey, we were dysfunctional prior to it all, uh, and definitely where it took off for me, but it contributed to it, and in the, and the mm-hmm. the ending of another long term relationship, and uh, you know, it's it's still a thing that sometimes the hurt creeps in, and that that I've got mm-hmm. to uh, you know work past those stages and phases that um, of of forgiving myself, and um, I love what you said there though about I'm not going to judge my insides. By mm-hmm. others, uh, say, by yeah. other people's outside. Uh, yeah, because yeah. Uh, my, you, Mikey and I were <laughs> we're having this conversation uh, yeah. about a week ago about uh, social media and sometimes the impact of it, and where people like, oh, those folks are so happy and they're so mm-hmm. wonderful, and it's like, mm-hmm. nah, Bob and Susie, uh, they're getting a divorce. Man, You're not you know? gonna post right. a picture of when it's gnarly. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? You're not gonna post yeah. somebody like, you know. So, so. I. I know for me, I've had to like even with some of that stuff is is disconnect. Mm-hmm. I'll follow things as long as people are positive. And sure. I know when I when I first got it, and I think you even Mikey sent me a text message that was over two years ago. Is like I'm going to acknowledge to society that I struggle with alcohol because everybody that's on here, a you're either going to abundantly give a shit about me and mm-hmm. you're going to be supportive. Or you're going to be people that I used with, and you're going to mm-hmm. go away mm-hmm. real quick. Right. And so yeah. it, that was like the like hurtful, harsh lesson of like, wow, I thought this person cared about me, but at the same time, wow, this person that I thought right. didn't care at all uh, mm-hmm. is loving and gracious and even yeah. forgiving. You know, when I was at that point of going and making my amends and my apologies to mm-hmm. folks. Um, I was blown away. I was blown away by it. Even the people that was like, thank you for your apology. I accept it, but we're still not going to have uh, any sort of friendship. Right. It's like, thanks for even hearing me out. That grace. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for even hearing yeah. me out. You've given me more of your time sure. in life than I deserved, you know? So yeah. it's, uh, it's no, crazy. Absolutely. And the authenticity, you know, and with no expectation and all these things. And I think ultimately, um, in recovery, we're given an unfair advantage at life. We like are suddenly handed these these tools that I'm like, well, why doesn't, why don't we like apply this to humanity? Right. Because we are all like these, um, insecure, unsure, self-doubt, selfish, self-centered, um, dependent creatures who are like, whatever, but we're actually like really awesome. Right. Cause yes. then we get sober, we do awesome things like what you're doing. And, um, yeah. So it's just like, I, I think that it's, it's interesting how, um, we can go from being so hopeless to then having such strong tools and such self-awareness that, um, you know, we, we're entirely different people. We're completely yeah. reborn. Um, so I, I definitely think the authenticity and sharing about it and, and putting it out there like you're doing, because I went, I went and listened to one of your podcasts. I think it was an athlete you had on who was an, was an addict to opiates. Oh, um, uh, I'm not quite sure. Was that was Ryan a, Cook, the fisherman? Yes. Yes. The fisherman. Yes. yes. Um, so, Ripping lips. <laughs> anyway, I was. I, I love hearing when people are kind of making it cool to talk about recovery. Um, Luke, Brandon, you know, Brandon's one of my best friends, and so I've seen the most 
hopeless cases recover. Sure. And yeah. I think what you're doing is awesome. You know, and I do that for a lot of different things. I don't think it's just about addiction. You know, you have the eating disorder community. Um, eating disorder has one of the highest fatal rates, um, you know, except for the opioid epidemic in wow. 2017 when we saw the high death rate yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, rise. You know, eating disorder has one of the largest death rates, and people don't know that. Um, pe- often, people with eating disorder are a walking you know, heart attack waiting yeah. to happen and you wouldn't even know it. So that's something that I've become very passionate about because I, I see that a lot of people with eating disorder end up getting addicted to substances and vice versa. So um, I see where a lot of the different, you know, outlets to not feel our feelings, you know, they all kind of come together. So any way that I can reach someone and, and talk about um, learning to express what's going on and, and not just being the starting point. That's great. Uh, Megan, and now if people want to get a little bit more information, I do want to jump back in time with you here in a little bit, but uh, if they want to connect with you or the the facilities that you work with, how could they go about that? So I'm, you know, I'm on all the social media stuff. I'm not, you know, I date a guy who's very big into the social media, <laughs> yeah. his, his business and his face of who he is. Um, mine is very much just personal, but um, by my name, Megan Leach, I am on like uh, Facebook and stuff. And then I'm Meg's underscore spirit junkie for Instagram. So that's my fun Instagram handle. Um, <laughs> and I will read off my for Banyan treatment centers. Okay. I do have a 1-800 number that I'd like people to have in case somebody needs treatment for primary mental health or substance abuse disorder. Um, you know, anytime someone needs anything, I'm here to help. And that number is... 888 270 Great. Uh, Megan, now let's uh, jump back. Uh, you were talking before we kind of segued off to 19, a mm-hmm. uh, car full of uh, uh, prescription medication, what you did not have a prescription for. Mm-hmm. Let's flash back to that night, obviously facing right, some serious charges, <laughs> serious charges. Because uh, yeah. to me, my, my my first kind of uh, uh, awakening was uh, car accident, car totaled, go to pick up the car the next day or to sign it off so it goes to pick and pull for salvage. And the guy mm-hmm. goes, who died? And I'm just walking, mm-hmm. standing just fine. He goes, I go, oh, I was in the car. And he goes, fuck you. No way. Somebody got yeah. really hurt or somebody right. died. No, I crawled out the side window. And mm-hmm. so for me, that was the first of the eye openers. What about for you? Was mm-hmm. this kind of first attempt at sobriety or where what what happened yeah it was it was my first attempt and um so on august 28 2008 i was driving like i told you and um it was like i left my house in a fit of anger i was annoyed or frustrated at somebody that's not surprising when i'm in my addiction and i storm off i wasn't a mile away from my house um, and I, I, I think I sped and I crossed over double lines when making a right-hand turn. And I remember I was, I was aware I wasn't going the speed limit. I looked in my rearview mirror and I remember thinking, is that a cop behind me? And showing no regard. And I continued to speed. <clears throat> I was on the phone with my sister and I, I think, you know, maybe a hundred yards later, the cop throws his lights on. And my exact words to my sister were, oh my gosh, I'm getting pulled over. I can't get any more points on my license or else it's suspended. I'll call you when I'm done. So like, that's how in type, like, I'll call you when I'm done with this, this situation. Right. So I get off the phone with her and, but what I, but it's 
so interesting when I look back. Um, I didn't have a driver's license because when I went to order a new one, because I had misplaced it, they wouldn't issue me a license. They would only issue me an ID card. But I was so not in tune with um, doing research to get anything right. done in my life to where I didn't even look at why they weren't giving me a driver's license. But it was because my driver's license was, in fact, suspended. And I didn't have car insurance, although my mother told me all the time, you're actually legally supposed to have car insurance. I disregarded her. So when that officer pulled me over and said, you know, license and registration, I handed him my registration and an ID card. And I said, I don't have insurance and I don't have a driver's license on me. So um, he runs my license. And in that period of time, I had no clue what was about to happen to my world. He comes back to the car and he says, you know, um, ma'am, can you please step out of the car and in that moment I can remember like it was yesterday and I looked down at my purse and I was like like game over right mm -hmm. I knew in that moment everything I didn't attempt to hide anything I didn't think I was actually I just was so in my own little world and um I tried negotiating with the cops I I remember telling them we could talk about this and they asked me if I was resisting arrest and I said absolutely not and they put me in the back of the cop car and they proceeded to search my car, which I had no clue what was in there. Um, they would walk up to my car with like a bag and is this yours? I'm like, nope. Like I just, I didn't know what they were talking about. My car was such a disaster. Um, I, I mean, it, it's just really, really sad. So I remember in the cop car that night, the first thought was, what's my dad going to say? Because everything was not, I, I, I drank at 12 because I wanted to feel better and I wanted I connection and I right. wanted so many things and all I did was make it worse right so here I was like man this was not the plan this was not how it was supposed to go my dad's going to be disappointed what am I supposed to do really not even aware of how I didn't know what the charges were going to be um you know you think possession or something right. like that but I had you know I had over 28 grams of pills in my car oh, which um yeah, so that's what equivalated to the three felony drug trafficking charges because I wasn't caught in the act of trafficking drugs. I was just caught with an amount that was equivalent to. Right. And so I didn't even know that that's what I was seriously up against. And I just remember going to jail that night. I was so scared. I was talking. I mean, I, this was not the world I came from. And sure. so I remember talking to the cop like, oh my gosh, like, what am I supposed to do in there? Like, what do I do? And, and I even remember all the way um, up to the police station, they let my sister come because I was telling them, like, my mom is going to be worried. My sister's going to be worried. They let me call my sister. My sister met me at the police station, still in Wellington, before going to jail. And they let her come clean out my car. I never got my car back. The state took my car, um, tried to sell it back for three times what it was worth. And my dad <laughs> said, go ask the dealers who got you here. Mm. Buy your car back. I'm not buying your car. And so I, I went to the, the station and I remember like my saying bye to my sister, her getting everything out of my car and um, going to jail that night. And I, I looked at the clock. I think by the time I was booked, it was like midnight. And I remember looking at the clock and as much as I didn't want to disappoint my dad. I didn't want anything bad to happen. I remember realizing in about six hours, I'm going to feel really, really sick. Right. And that was the only thing I could think about was yeah. that I wasn't going to be able to get drugs. And so by the time I went to my first court appearance that next morning at 6 a.m., I was in full drug withdrawal, shackles on my feet, handcuffed. I didn't remember giving them my mom's information. My mom's there in the courtroom. I couldn't think of how did she know to come here that's how far gone I was. I was very much in 
a state of um, confusion. It didn't seem real. I was just going through the motions and um, I did post bail. I was in jail for about a week, um, but I got released on the house arrest. They didn't let me go on my own recognizance. I had to go um, be transferred from an officer to my house and I was on house arrest. Um, my bail was $75,000. So for just get me out, my dad had to pay $7,500 in hopes that I I followed the rules, right? Um, And I have three younger siblings. I have a stepmom. This affected my whole family. Um, My dad got me an attorney, which I can never repay him for. And I'm in touch with that attorney today. Um, His name is Ian Goldstein. Like, I owe it all to him. He you know, my dad said, don't let her be a felon and don't let her go to prison. She's 19 and needs a second chance. And that is all that guy did for me because I was still on house arrest. I had, I was on probation for over six years and I had a ton of community service, a ton of fines, um, but I'm not a felon and I wasn't going to be a felon as long as I followed the rules. And for six years, I didn't get in trouble um, and I got released and I'm not a felon today. And, and, you know, I have a record to whatever degree, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that, that attorney came to visit me in jail the one week I was in there before I got out. And he said, your dad has a soft spot in his heart for you because <laughs> I looked at the charges and I looked at your mugshot and none of this made sense. Like yeah. what this girl did this. And, and he was like, and I, I really want to help you. And, um, you know, so had I not had that attorney, I would have, I had a chance of going to prison for 10 years mm-hmm, if I didn't yeah. have that defense. And, yeah, for sure. Um, in this 10 years, I've completely changed my life. I mean, it's insane who I am today versus this person I was then. Um, so had I gone away, it wouldn't have been that. So I'm very grateful. Um, I know that this does not have to be the story. Um, it could have been very different for me. Yeah, now and I, I for me, I, I don't think I've ever talked to you about this, Mike. When I had, uh, I had a mm-hmm. night in jail, and uh, you know, even the guys in there, you know, I remember this one guy, man, young blood, you're in the wrong place, uh-huh. you know, mm-hmm. and it's like what, yeah. what what went down and telling the whole story and everything else, yeah. and um, you know, from that, and remember going to the court, exp- you know, situation, and what they got me on was I was about. About a half mile from my house with the accident, and, and I walked to my house. Well, it had thrown my phone somewhere in my car as well as one of mm-hmm. my flip-flops, so I've got stickers like jammed into one of my feet that knock on the door. At the time, my wife probably scared as I'm covered in dirt and everything else, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't remember much else until the paramedics are in our driveway and the cop and, um, you know, going, you know, it's like, hey, I could take you to jail or they could take you to the hospital. Mm-hmm. The paramedic says, I think there are some things wrong with you, which I was actually misdiagnosed at the hospital, but I did separate my shoulder and slipped a disc in my oh, neck, wow. which I didn't I didn't really feel for days, like the total impact. Mm-hmm. So went to the hospital. By the time I went to court, and the irony of it was there was a lawyer there that I had actually drank with before, and he gave me oh, this wow. look um, and kind of, I guess it wouldn't really be a sidebar. He was authorized to talk to me, so to speak. And he just went, I'm sorry, there has to be some sort of of service here of some kind. So I was lucky that because uh, the employers at the time, you know, gave me a nice letter um, that I, you know, I was always a good employee. Uh, I never had that problem. And that I was a, you know, a father had gone through divorce and uh, was a, was a 50, 50 custody, the primary income, 
all these things that they gave me leniency and was uh, on an ankle monitor for, I think it was mm -hmm. 14 days. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I was yeah. facing a good month in jail with it, with a hit and yeah. drunken hit and run and le leaving the mm -hmm. scene. I Fortunately, no one else was hurt. I hit a dead power pole that there was luckily no wires attached mm -hmm. to it. It fell, you know, and uh, I just, man, still sitting in that, it's like, yeah. you, you son of a, you know what, but uh, right. it's finding that I, grace was, and humility. Megan, I'm curious. Oh, no, go, go ahead. ahead. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah. No, I, I remember you said hit and run. When I was like 16 and just gotten my license, I like rear-ended somebody. And I remember, and I left the scene, and they ended up getting my license plate. The cops called me. They're like, we're going to charge you for reckless driving. And it was like this whole thing at like 16. But I remember thinking, they can't catch, I'm behind them, they're not going to know who it was. <laughs> and I speed off, and they, like, got my license plate and still got me in trouble. But when you said hit and run, I was like, yeah, I did that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what I was curious of is you said in about going back to when you, you know, went to jail, you mm -hmm. said in about six hours you would start to feel it and whatnot. What was that week yeah. like? Oh my oh, gosh, yeah. it was terrible. Yeah. It was so bad. Not even because jail is scary. No, it yeah, is. I would imagine the withdrawals it itself. Like, so bad. I um so I remember I remember being like, you know, you have the cold, the sweat, the yeah. freezing, but you're sweating and um they put me on the top bunk so I had to like climb up and, and it, the whole bed would squeak. And I was moving because you can't stop moving because you're the restless legs and you feel like you have bugs under your skin and your spine hurts and the work. So I'm moving and just, and you, it's like where you twist yourself in the blankets from spinning. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew I was annoying the person below me the whole time. I couldn't eat. And then you have like, you know, you're throwing up, you have diarrhea, like your whole body is malfunctioning, which yeah. is uncomfortable when you're in your own home. Mm -hmm. So now you're in open bathrooms, a public, cause I was in general population with probably well over a hundred girls. Like a lot of people wasn't like my own cell. Right. So, you know, you have three stalls, no doors. The only thing that gave you actual privacy was the shower. So there were two showers like in my little unit. And, um, and I remember doing that. I remember I would try and get up before anyone woke up. Because what they do is they wake you up at like 5 a.m. for breakfast. And then you go down and eat. And then you go back to sleep. So until like whatever time. So I would wake up and I would never, I wasn't hungry. So I would just feel nauseous. You have to go down. So I would like go down. I wouldn't eat. Um, and then I would try and go shower. I would try and like do whatever I could to be like alone. Mm -hmm. And then um, I met, I, I joke about this, but it's not, it's just what I remember. I met this Russian girl who was so nice and she was being deported. And I met her and then I met another girl who was in there for writing fraudulent checks, but was an opiate addict. So it was just different reasons, but we were both like addicted to opiates. And I bonded with them, right? Like yeah. two story, you, I mean, already Jason, we've been, you, we identify. Yes. And um, so I was just like, I found those girls. And um, I remember like when canteen, you can like order food. I was like, nope, I'm not going to be here long enough to meet canteen. But then my appetite started coming back like day six. Mm -hmm. And I like girls were giving me food. And I remember they all thought I was rich, which I remember being like, they have no clue. Like, because <laughs> I was from Wellington. What kind of car did you drive? I'm like a Honda Accord with the mirrors were taped on with duct tape. Which, you know, I was a mess. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but they were nice to me in there. Um, 
there wasn't anything. I, I read a book. I remember reading um, the book, you know, the show True Blood. Yes. Yeah. I read the book before it ever became a show. And it was just like little things that I hung on to. And then somebody told me, if you don't, if you start a book in jail and you don't finish it, you don't go home. I finished the book. Um, stuff like that. I remember the, then they, the day I was getting out, um, I remember the car ride back to Wellington and they stopped at gun club and they put the ankle bracelet on my leg and then going home. I remember like all I wanted was cereal. I like ate cereal is the first thing I got when I got home with sugar, probably for the detox. And, and then I sat on the couch for like two weeks. My mom would come home. She'd put a list of things for me to do. Did you do anything today? I said, nope, I couldn't move. And, and it probably took about three weeks. And then I was like, boom, I made a pot of coffee one morning and I had all the motivation in the world. And in that moment is like, I had been waking up every day since I'm 15 and needing a drug to feel energized and motivated. And I will never forget that day where I didn't feel like crap. I didn't feel like I needed a drug. And I was like, you couldn't stop me. It was like the, the feeling that I thought I'd get from drugs, I finally received from not having drugs. And I, I didn't, drinking since 12, I didn't know what that felt like. Right. And, um, and that was, I mean, I remember calling my dad and he was not very, he was not as excited as I was. I was like, dad, I'm cleaning out all the garbage bags from the car that night. <laughs> He's like, great. Awesome. I'm so mad at you. Like, <laughs> you know, and I, but I just started to get life back. And then, um, as soon as I was off house arrest, I went and walked to the plaza next to my house and I got a job. I started waitressing and, and oddly, I ended up bartending in early recovery, which shifted quick. Um, That's odd. I worked I just, for a catering company, yeah. and I was a bartender. Uh, so. Yeah, and my sponsor knew. Like, everyone in my life knew. But it wasn't what triggered me. I um, I started saving money, and, and it didn't bother me to work in the restaurant. And I, I bought a new car. Um, so part of my agreement was I went to rehab, too. But I kind of, manip I didn't manipulate the system, but I told them I hadn't used since I got arrested, which wasn't true. Um, and they go, well, you don't meet criteria to do inpatient treatment. I said, but the court said I had to. I either had to do a year in prison or a long-term program. And they said, well, if we tell the courts that you don't need residential, you, you could do day treatment and just commute. Mm -hmm. And I was mm -hmm. like, okay, which worked out for me because I saved money for a car and I took the Palm Tram. I used to hide in the Starbucks in Wellington and bolt to the bus. God forbid anybody saw me taking the bus, right? <laughs> like crazy. And um, But I learned how to take the bus and I did that for nine months. I'd go to treatment during the day. I would take the bus back to Wellington. I'd go to work till like 1 a.m. I'd sleep and I did that for nine months. And it taught me structure. It taught me routine, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, and then my whole life truly changed when um, this woman, her name's Kim Coslow. She's my mentor, my guide, like she's, I owe it all to her. She knew me as Megan from Kentucky. The restaurant was named Kentucky and she loved our sushi. And she just knew me as Megan from Kentucky because I also went to meetings and knew the girls that lived at this sober home she had in Wellington. And um, anyway, one of the girls one time said, Megan's driving me home from the meeting. And she goes, Megan from Kentucky? And she goes, yeah. She goes, tell her I want her to come work for me. I'd never, I didn't even know what treatment the treatment world looks like right to work in it and um i went for an interview had no clue what i was doing and that woman taught me everything and that's how i got into the field of addiction and 
So I've been working as, you know, either an admissions, a recovery coach, a business development, whatever, you know, I've done human resources. I don't know. I've done everything you could do in this industry, um, except anything clinical. I'm going to school currently to be a clinician. Um, but yeah, I just fell in love with it and I, and it was very genuine and authentic. It wasn't me chasing anything. And Mm -hmm. I think that was one of the first times in my life where I just, I allowed it to start carrying me and I couldn't have planned any of it better. Like it's all just worked out. Nice. Sometimes the best thing we can do, and I'm actually reading the book, uh, get out of your own way right now. And uh, that's one thing I've had to learn to do is get the hell out of my own way. Cause I'm really good at getting in my own way. Uh, over the course of my lifetime, especially adulthood, I've realized, Oh, I get in my own way so well, (laughs) so well, you know? So, uh, well, Megan, we definitely uh, appreciate your story and you being so transparent with us. And it, um, really is awesome. One of our first interviews was with a guy named Eric Christensen, a documentarian. And he always, uh, the the saying he said in that first, uh, uh, episode speaking about our adversity becoming our greatest advantage. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, Mm -hmm. the more and more that we've gotten into meeting folks such as yourself, that I, I'm seeing that's the total truth and I can relate because I put it out there kind of in a dream wish list uh, per my big brother who's uh, one of my greatest mentors about if I could do anything for a living, what would it be? And it was a podcast and to have had this mm-hmm. opportunity come up in early tw- uh, late 2019, uh, early 2020 um, to mm-hmm. share stories such as yourself. And so... Your time and your energy and your efforts, it's, it's awesome. We appreciate it because our, our, our true mission is if we help just one person, it, it, it would all be worth mm-hmm. it. And the more we get into this, uh, I don't know, I don't want to sound emotional. I think that one person was me. It's definitely been helping yeah. me, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, you know? I'm sure. So, it's like a con- it's, it's connection all the time. Yes. You meet people who you can relate to. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate you guys listening and having the interest. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for coming on. And Megan, of course, if people want to find uh, you on Instagram, our page, Knocking Doors Down, is following Megan. Uh, if they want to connect with you on Facebook, it's just Megan Leach. Looking for that. For L-E-A. Mm-hmm. L-E-A. Which I I have to do it. Megan Leach. Uh, you know, my voice is a little tortured. <laughs> that's I been killing do, it. You had to do it. I had to, do, had it. to I, do it. My, my Robin Leach. Lifestyles of Megan. <laughs> Everyone says that thing. Yeah. Everyone. Uh, I bet. Are it's you? Like, I'm like, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, like, <what? laughs> really? Uh, yeah. And then uh, for more on the Banyan Centers, because that's uh, the mm-hmm. the great facilities that you're working with. That we've been able to speak with so many great people, There's, such we as have Luke all and social all media. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we have we have everything on social media, and it's a really good way to see who we are on Google or YouTube. All of our stuff is pretty transparent and current. Um, with Luke and Brandon, they're always doing stories and different things that they're doing. Uh, you know, Jason Patton doing what he's doing for mental health. So there's a lot of stuff, and, it, and it's pretty informative. It's not just your typical, you know, it's entertaining, and we're yeah. trying to make it where people are having the conversation yes. of mental health and substance. Absolutely. Well, Megan, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. It's great to make your acquaintance. And hopefully once all this lifts, uh, you know, we were talking with Jason about like somehow we have to figure out visits with all the folks we've 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 discussed stuff with. You guys should just throw a party and do like a round table. That's a good idea. That's not a bad idea. 
Just That's, invite you know, everybody. That'd be so. pretty sick. Yeah. We should do that. Awesome. Like a panel or something. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, right? You know, I, I would have that arrogance of, okay, everybody break me down now, you know? <laughs> right, right. I'm going to talk about what myself. You, what questions do you have for me, guys? <laughs> right. What do you guys got for me? Come on, let's hear it. Uh, yeah. Hey, Megan, keep doing great work and uh, keep safe through all this. And hopefully, uh, you know, of course, as of this recording, we're still under the lockdown, but it gets lifted and we get back to yeah. normal. No, whatever, whatever. Whatever normal is, as I'm doing the yeah. air quotes again for those that can't see, the normal is uh, going know, to but. Target and not fearing for your life. That's, that's what just I miss. you. That's that is just me. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, what am I gonna do? So, all right, Megan. Before oh. we keep going, Thanks, we'll, we'll let you go. Thank you so much, and yeah. bye to the doggy. Bye, doggy. Thanks bye, for your time, there. Megan. We appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks. Have a good one. The Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. Boy, Megan Leach, Mikey, what an amazing young lady. Absolutely. Of course, uh, she was speaking about her relationship, and of course, that's what Jason Patton mm-hmm. of the uh, Fire Department Chronicles, that's great right. guy. Yep, yep, funny I, dude. I would love to talk with them both at one time and find out how they met each other, because, you know... I'm sure they'd be fun to just talk to, to get, just to see how they are together. You know right. what I mean? She's just so damn sweet, and he's funny as shit. You know what I mean? So it's like, I think it would be a blast to talk to both of them. Yeah, well, of course, she appears uh, a lot on the Fire Department Chronicles, uh, a lot of the skits and stuff that they film. So right. Megan Leach, man, awesome. Appreciate your time. And, of course, you can find out more about, uh, if you go back in the podcast, she does give out a direct number to contact her. Maybe you're not comfortable talking to a guy or someone that you don't know that has suffered from addiction. You're looking to get help or something. Someone you know needs that help, you can reach out to them. Again, that number was given out in the episode twice. She's a young lady that's been there. So mm-hmm. do it. There is help out there. There is people wanting to help. They will connect you. Uh, there's been several people we've talked to, Brandon Novak, uh, Luke Wallet, who was on last week, and Megan herself, that they give out direct numbers that you can actually talk to them and they'll lead you to help. Mm-hmm. So get that help yeah. if you need it. All right. Uh, but just an amazing lady to hear all the stuff that she went through and um, who she is now. So, Mikey! Jason! Excited. Our next guest. Who is it? Next Thursday, available for you guys. I don't know if they're ready for it, man. I'll, Should we tell them? We're ready. All right, fine. My future wife, Carmen Electra, is coming <laughs> on next. That is right. Carmen Electra. We are going to have her on the uh, podcast, hopefully even answering some of your questions that we asked you to put out there on social media. Uh, I want to ask with her, one of the main things that I want to understand, Mikey, is uh, you know, oftentimes, especially celebrity women, they're aligned with whom they're involved with. I want to really know how she was able to find her own identity separate of that. You know, I think that that's a huge thing. I've seen that happen a lot, especially with women where they kind of lose their identity within a, a relationship. Sure. Um, you know, males too. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Guilty as charged. Sure. For that, sure. For males sure. too. But in this particular instance, we are talking about Carmen. 
Yeah, so oh, lots of different things. Uh, Mikey's going to ask her if she'll uh, marry him. Yeah, so everybody, back off! <laughs> She's mine. Well, I'm going to ask her. She's not mine. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. If not, I'm slotting in, buddy. I'm right. slotting in. That's fine. At least it'll be in the family. You know what I mean? I right. just want to see her for Thanksgiving Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> we still got other great episodes headed your way, too, down the road. We'll be uh, speaking with Amanda Webster a lady who stood on the edge of a balcony in Toronto uh, ready to take her life. And one particular song from her favorite band pulled her off that balcony. It is a phenomenal story of some severe trauma, sexual trauma, Mm -hmm. uh, how it took her down a road of chemical abuse and just really driving her life to that brink of getting up on that ledge and having a plan and turning her life around. I mean, she's just an awesome lady. So we'll be talking with her and uh, Matt Gannam still coming up, a, a gentleman who was totally off into opioids, heroin, was going down the road, poetry and music turned his life around. He is now leading a treatment center. That's right. Yeah, wicked good uh, conversation. Absolutely. So, so many more great episodes headed your way for Knocking Doors Down. And if you're listening, hey, please subscribe on whatever platform. We're on Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeart, and you can go to kddmediacompany.com, click the podcast link, but whatever platform you listen on, please do us a favor. Leave a five-star rating, write a review. It moves us up the charts. We can't do it without you guys. And the best thing you can do, if you maybe share us on your social media, or there's simple ways to take the podcast send a link to someone via like a direct message on social media or just text it to them. It's so simple and it helps this thing grow as we continue to just uh, try to change one life at a time, hopefully and impact people. That's correct, Jason. Anything else, Mikey? Nope, but I do want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in and listening and for all of the support. You are all very much appreciated by both of us, so thank you again. Keep knocking doors down. Knocking Doors Down. Real people, real stories, real life. Real discussions of life struggles including addiction, relationships, finances, and more. But even more importantly, living with them, overcoming them, and conquering them. Celebrities, experts, and everyday people talk about how they were able to break through whatever life handed them by knocking doors down. New podcast episodes are available every Thursday. Subscribe now on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio app, or at kddmediacompany.com. This podcast contains the views and opinions of the knocking doors down hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does 
listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with their content, establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company.